<laughs> but um, you know, where did you? Uh, so I read on the Ludgate stuff. So um, yeah. I, where did this come from? It's pretty amazing, actually. Well, uh, many years ago, I used to be an academic in the computer science department at Trinity College Dublin. And one of my colleagues there is Brian Coughlin. Um, he was there at the time, he's now retired. But it was Brian who did a lot of the work on Ludgate. Um, there's another Brian, there's Brian Randell of University of Newcastle. And the two Brines uh, have done a lot of the work really since the 1970s of discovering Ludgate's work and his family. And they've published a book which is available. uh, It's called Percy Ludgate, Ireland's First Computer Designer. It's on Amazon.com if anybody wants to get it, but look for Brian Cochran, Brian Randell. So it's really because I know Brian Cochran from Computer Computer Science and Trinity was uh, how I got to hear about the project. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. So, like, anyone who is interested in computers uh, would be aware of Babbage, uh, famously in the 1820s. Yeah, yeah. But, so, Ludgate is Ireland's first computer designer. And, of course, <laughs> being in the early part of the um, uh, 20th century, it was a mechanical computer. But uh, So, just for the... I'm talking to Chris Horn, who's academic, uh, entrepreneur, Multi-talented and general, multi-talented man, and generally all around nice guys. So, oh, thanks. Chris, thanks for being on the podcast. The yeah, so like this, I had a look at it after you mentioned, and it was the design. Ludgate's design of a mechanical computer looks incredibly small, and you know, hard through. I, I mean, have you can you describe it for people? Well, well, maybe uh, could start with with Babbage, uh, just to sort of set the context. And as sure. you said, Babbage. Yeah. In the 1820s, he's he's well known, really, in the computing world worldwide, as the design of the first full computer. Actually, he, he really he he had two steps. He first did what are called difference engines, and he was working with the British Admiralty, uh, basically to produce chart, uh, produce tables. Excuse me, of say sine and cosine and trig for navigation purposes. And the difference engines uh, basically work by taking any polynomial expression and being able to produce a table which says, if I know what the values for, for zero and one and two and three and four, then I can predict what the value will be for five, six, seven, and eight. So it basically reproduces the polynomial for additional terms. So anyway, he uh, Babbage developed uh, two designs for difference engine and in the London Science Museum and also in the Computer History Museum near Stanford in Silicon Valley, there are full working models of the difference engine number two. Babbage was unable to actually complete his implementation because really the precision of the uh, en- of the engineering of the machine was too great for what was available at that time in terms of working with brass and metals. Mm-hmm. So he's never built but the analytical engine was his his next major project, and that was really done in the eighteen thirties, I think. And um, the big difference between an analytical engine and a difference engine is an analytical engine can work with the results of the previous computation. So, in particular, like an if, you know, if the value was was positive, do that. If the value was negative, do this. Difference engines don't really have that if capability. Or, or you know, while something is bigger than six, keep doing it. 
So whereas the analytical engine did have this capability to look at a value and say, well, if it's positive or negative, then do this or do that. So it was really much more like a modern computer, albeit mechanical. Yeah, and, and that's really, yeah, as you say, that's the computers can make decisions in, in that sense. Yeah, it? that's the main difference between the difference. Yeah. Engine and analytical engine. And can I he, just say, Chris? Uh, sorry, Chris. It's just sort of remarkable that the that the technology was driven by the requirements of the British Navy. Because similarly with Harrison's watches, um, famous yeah. uh, watches, they were driven. The, the famous book Longitude. They were driven by um, uh, by navigational comms. Navigation. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. So just in context, it's really interesting that the. Uh, you know, I guess the power of Britain at the time was expressed through his navy, and there was absolutely. Yeah, sorry. So go ahead, Chris. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it, it's fine. But but the yeah. point really being that neither Babish's difference engine nor his analytical engine were ever built. The the analytical engine would have been a monster. He each number uh, could be uh, have up to fifty five zero digits, and each digit was a cogwheel two and a half meters. <laughs> In diameter. Sorry for laughing, but yeah. you know, yeah. I know. It's like, I mean, at the time, this is ra- radical technology. Yeah, so if, if you had just one number, it's 50 cogwheels stacked in a column, wow. two and a half metres wide in diameter. And uh, his memory system was going to be a thousand numbers. So that's 50,000 cogwheels. Wow, wow. Each two that's and a half metres diameter. And if you think about it, you know, a thousand Cog, we, a, fa- a thousand numbers, two and a half meters wide, lined up would have been two and a half kilometers long. Wow. But he managed to get that down, that designed to about 150 meters, but that even long, that's longer than the uh, Crow Park pitch or the <laughs> Viva Stadium pitch. You have, to, you have to admire the ambition, don't you? You really do. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a great graphic novel that was produced in London by Sidney Padua called, what was it called? The, the Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace, being A. Lovelace mm-hmm. and Babbage, and this graphic novel. And in it, she draws Babbage's wonderful contraption, and you get a size of the immense size of it. But as I say, it was, it was never built. But then to come back to Ludgate, Ludgate was uh, born in Skibreen in 1883, and he produced, um, as far as we know, the world's second design of an analytical engine, of a full mechanical computer mm. after Babbage. But he claimed, uh, Ludgate claimed that he knew nothing about Babbage's work. And when he published his design in 1909, his design is completely different from, from Babbage's. And so it's kind of, it is credible that he, in fact, he wasn't influenced by Babbage's work whatsoever. Now, there were working difference engines between Babbage and Ludgate, but Ludgate was only the second full, complete mechanical pu- computer after Babbage. But his work was largely lost and forgotten uh, during the First World War until it was discovered, uh, rediscovered in the 1970s. Mm, and <laughs> it is totally different. As you say, the design involves notched rod, rods in wheels. And also, interestingly, he had the multiplier. He had a multiplication unit. Yeah, uh, the basic way that he, he it worked was uh, he didn't use 50 five-zero-digit numbers, but 20-digit numbers. I guess his design could have been expanded up to 50, but he only did for 20. And he had a sign uh, um, indicating a positive or negative. So, in fact, there were 21 um, values associated with the number. And each number was represented by a rod. So there were 21 rods and they were put together in a shuttle. 
So a, a shuttle held 21 rods and a shuttle was a single number. Mm -hmm. And then for his storage, he had two concentric rings. One ring can had 128 shuttles and the inner ring had 64. So the inner ring and the outer ring could move independently, each of them holding either 64 or 128 numbers. Each number is 20 digits with a plus or minus sign. And then what happened is that the, the rings were lined up under program control and so the two numbers were presented, as it were, to the computing unit, to the arithmetic unit. Right. And the arithmetic unit was both a multiplier and an adder, whereas Babbage's machine only had addition. It didn't intrinsically have multiplication. But the way in which the um, multiplication worked was kind of interesting. It, it, was, it used logarithms. So you know how when you have log of x plus uh, x times y can be the log of x plus y. So Ludgate uses the logarithms to implement multiplication. But in his multiplication unit, he had uh, what were sort of blades or slides. And they, these were long pieces of metal and they had notches in them, rather like a staircase. And normally on a staircase, you know, you go up one unit, across one unit, up one unit, across one unit. But in Ludgate's, this, the, you went up one unit, but then across maybe three units, or up one unit, across five units. So the the distance you went across the blade was logarithmic. So the, the difference between the first step and, and the second step might have been one unit. Between the second step and the third step might have been three units. Between the third step and the fourth step might have been seven units. So you had these elongated blades in which the steps were longer and longer and longer. And it worked really like a, an old-fashioned slide rule, which again, if you think of a slide rule, um, it it's the, uh, the, the... You might want to explain this, Chris, because I don't think, I think you and I... <laughs> the line, you know, I know slide rule has, has a, is a ruler with two parts, an inner ruler and an outer ruler, but on it, there are lines, but the lines are logarithmic. They get closer and closer together and you can line them up uh, by lining the lines to do multiplication. There's a, a bit of an in joke between you and me, Chris, I think. <laughs> For the old people. <laughs> so Ludgate used a similar idea to actually implement multiplication. The other thing that was kind of neat about what he did was when he multiplied numbers like 63 by 45, he took the most significant digit first. So if we were doing 63 by 45, we'd first multiply 63 by 5, shifted by 10 and then multiplied by four, but he did the opposite. He did 63 multiplied it by 40. And after that did 63 multiplied by five. So he worked in the opposite order, right, right. taking the most significant digit first and yeah, then backwards yeah. for what it's worth. But well, he, that's, it's, that's, uh, it's pretty sophisticated. I mean, that, that sounds like the famous uh, arithmetic logic unit, which is like the basis of the the modern human uh, architect, well, modern, I'd say, but the, yeah, uh, the original it, electronic computers. It, it, it was. Uh, I mean, Babbage's design was never built uh, until uh, the difference machine was, was built in the 19... Uh, sorry, in about 1970s, 1980s. But uh, Ludgate's machine also has never been built. And it'd be quite interesting, I think, to try and build it. And I think with modern... You know, 3D printers and CAD-CAM, perhaps there could be a project there to try and build a Ludgate's machine, but it's never been built. 
And uh, so we don't know for certain whether it would ever work. But the whole thing fitted into the size of really a, a small fridge, you mm -hmm. know, compared to Babbage's 150 meter long monstrosity. <laughs> Uh, that gate's design was about a couple of orders magnitude, you know, a hundred times smaller, and would have, would have been quite compact had it been had it been built. Um, so it's quite a project then uh, to try and work out how exactly it worked. Uh, the work by Brian Cotton and Brian Randell is sort of confirmed in in principle it should work, and here's the mathematical formulas behind it. But in practice, nobody's ever actually built one, so we don't know whether it would have worked. And do you think that's going to happen? Do you think uh, some... I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you, you probably Can't could... be a pocket project for myself or for somebody yeah. to... Well, I imagine it's that. possible to build a digital twin uh, without actually turning any metals on. Yeah, it would be a fun thing to try, to try and do. What I other... Think, Ludgate was um, a, a bit of a loner and he died young, I think. I was... Yeah. I, I, I did look at the amount of research that was done by the Bryans and pretty incredible body of work there but and I, I put a link on the show card for people to be able to follow it up but Ludgate himself was was a bachelor all his life Chris he never married that's right uh he was born originally in Skibbereen but he's he moved to Dublin or his family moved to Dublin in about uh, 1899 to Drumcondra to 30 Dark Road he uh that school at 14 because school was compulsory till 14 uh and then at 15 he became he joined the Irish civil service as a junior as a boy copyist <clears throat> and he actually passed uh civil service exams i think when he was about 19 for assistant clerkship i was first in the country mm -hmm. in those exams and passed medical but he wasn't hired the civil service didn't take him on even though they took other people who were, had got lower exam results, it's not clear why he was never hired. But anyway, after that, he went and worked for a corn merchant. Uh, he then started, studied to be an accountant at Rathmines College of Commerce. And um, he was working for an accountancy firm in Dame Street. But during his spare time from 1903 to 1909, he, he worked on his design of computer in the, in the evenings. He seems to have worked on his own. He doesn't seem to have been doing it for anybody. He wasn't paid. It was a hobby. Mm -hmm. And then in 1909, he published a paper in the RTS, the Royal Dublin Society, which was duly refereed and examined uh, and considered, yes, this is worthy of, of publication. But he, he, yeah, he was very much a loner, worked on his own. I think mm. very close to his his family and and his sister and, and brothers, but but never married. Yeah, and it's really sort of maybe uh, we're doing some some pop psychology here. It's, it's sort of that loner, that um, driven, um, maybe eccentric, you might say, uh, but you know clearly genius. You know that uh, yeah. uh, even the concepts that he came up with. Yeah, he he published uh, again. He went to an international conference in Edinburgh in July 1914 and spoke extensively about Babbage's design and explained at that conference how Babbage's analytical engine worked or would have worked, but almost as a throwaway and almost as a, sort of a couple of sentences, he says, oh, by the way, I myself have also worked on <laughs> an analytical engine. Of course, um, everybody does. But he, but he doesn't explain it at all in that conference. 
Yeah, the yeah. very next day, the very next day, Austrian Empire declared war on Serbia and the First World War started. Mm. And his work seems to have stopped at the start of the First World War and he never worked on it. But uh, again, and during the war, he worked on uh, really the organisation and, and the management of the production of oats uh for the cavalry in the in the war and he was a chartered accountant but his work seems to come to an end there at the start of the first world war and was lost and never referenced mm -hmm. that's an amazing story chris and it's a, it's sort of only it's really interesting as sort of coming out at this stage a yeah. hundred years later and um yeah but you can see anyone's interested in computers can see the insights that he had but uh, yeah, we were talking earlier, Chris. No, thanks for for um, bringing this, you know, out or bringing it to the public, and we'll definitely try and get more interest in it. But we were talking earlier about the uh, association between music and maths, and you being a, a fairly clever guy with maths. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you, you're into music as well, yeah. I I am. I'm into all sorts of music, both modern and classic, and jazz and blues and. You're a man after my own heart, Chris. <laughs> Maybe I might meet, meet your mathematical talents, but music is my same taste. What I'm really interested in is, you know, sort of inserting a musical genre into another uh, musical uh, theme or, or era. And um, I, I was thinking, you know, what 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 could what could we talk about musically? But one of the really sort of funny examples of that is I don't know whether you you know the two cellos who uh, other guys have played cellos, but I don't. They they do on YouTube. There's this wonderful um, rendition that they do of ACDC's Thunderstruck, yeah, where they know. play to sort of the Viennese <laughs> or, audience of the 18th century. And they crash, and you get this wonderful audience reaction to, to <laughs> modern music. Um, They've they've also they've, they've done done another one where they do Beethoven's Fifth together with a uh, whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin and they do both old you know wooden cellos with electric cellos and the transition between the two the two genres and they do they they they've done some stuff with you too you know with or without you where the streets have no name and when you hear Edge's riff played on cello is just extraordinary. I thought you could do something silly like, you know, you you two two cello, you you two cello, you UTC. But I, I love sort of reactions where you're taking things out of context. So you're taking somebody who's trained in one style of music and then exposing them to another. And there's a guy that I follow on YouTube called Doug uh, Helvering. He does the daily Doug show and he's a classically trained composer but he's a cool dude and he's done all cap and um you know he quite often will have a glass of whiskey or bourbon as he's sort of t talking about a piece of music i mean um or i i'm thinking when he does shine on you crazy diamond by pink floyd he's actually mm. smoking a joint you know as he well, talks uh, <laughs> through it he's on the next podcast chris He's an interesting <laughs> guy. So when you, when you sort of reinterpret music, like, you know, Vivaldi's Four Seasons reinterpreted by Max Richter. I've, I've been listening to that lately, Chris, and it's just it's extraordinary. fantastic. Oh, Glenn Gould and Bax, you know, Goldberg. Very, mm -hmm. I mean, if mm -hmm. you think, I don't know, if Planksty or Horse Lips 
or gloaming where we're taking Irish music and exposing mm. it to blues and to jazz. And you think of Thomas Bartlett, who's the pianist in the gloaming and how he, he actually brings in Chicago blues to traditional Irish tunes. That's really you know, good stuff. So I kind of like oh, that sort of transition of genres. Um, you two's gospel choir, you know, still haven't found what I'm looking for to oh, gospel right. music. It's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. There's a band from uh, North Mali in the Saharan Desert called Tanaroan, and they were here in Dublin recently at the concert hall, and they've taken Saharan folk music and brought in a rock and blues element to it. And it's just extraordinary music. I thought that would be really interesting. But anyway, where I ended up with uh, long that's story. That's quite a setup, Chris. I have to say, that's the best <laughs> is, setup I thought, for this. I thought we'd go for The Who. Okay. Now, now The Who, not the WHO, but the HU. <clears throat> oh, they do Mongolian throat singing. <laughs> and they came to light really in, I think, about 2018 <clears throat> with a, a song called A Wolf Totem. And you, they're, they're all dressed up in, in Mongolian warrior outfits, but they're, they're riding Harley Davidson's across the Mongolian <laughs> step <laughs> in these sort of big black leathers <laughs> rather than traditional horses. But uh, yeah. quite a few songs I like their music. Um, one that I like to play is called Black Thunder. Uh, originally, it was done as uh, background music to a video game for Star Wars, uh, Jedi, The Fallen Order, but it was released this just July as a, as a single. It's actually in two parts, tells a part of a, uh, tells a story of a fallen warrior. But the scenes, if you watch it on YouTube, are just phenomenal because you've got fantastic scenery of Mongolia, of the steppes, of the mountains, of the rivers, and so on. But the music is quite extraordinary too. I did not have, I did not have that on my bingo card today, Chris, but you've come up with that. <laughs> that was brilliant. I was horrible. Anyway, I'll send you the link. It's worth watching the video on YouTube. Yeah, no, well, I'll, I'll, yeah. thanks for that. And thanks for right. being on the podcast. I just much appreciate your. All right, take care, Pat. Thanks.